Welcome to the Real Life Theology Podcast. In today's episode, we have a special conversation with Shadonke Johnson and Paul Hugabart about how to create a discipleship culture. Shadonke shares his story about how he started off in ministry. They describe how starting with prayer and fasting is an important part, really an essential part, of seeing a disciple-making movement happen in America. We hope that this content richly blesses you in your ministry today, and there's tools you can take away from this podcast episode to move forward in making disciples. Uh, Shadonke has been a great resource to many of us here in North America as we're seeking to Uh, become disciples who make disciples, and see our churches become disciple-making churches. Uh, It's a slow transformation because, as many of you know, we're kind of pushing, especially for those of us who are connected like I am to a legacy church, we're connected to a system that has been working the way it has been working for quite a long time. So bringing transformation into that system is not an easy thing. It's not a task for the faint of heart. You've got to keep going. Uh, But what I can say from my personal experience, where we have been pushing this ball up a hill for the last several years, uh, the ball is getting lighter, it feels lighter, because there are more behind the ball pushing it uh, every step of the journey. And I think you'll find that'll be your experience as well, if you get behind the ball and start to push. But we need a network for this. We need resources, guys like Shadonke, who are willing to come and help, and we get a lot of inspiration. But then Shadonke goes back to Sierra Leone, right? And we can get in touch with them on WhatsApp, which is awesome. But uh, <laughs> but we need each other in this journey. And so we're hoping, and if you were here last night and got to be part of a conversation that we had last night, we're looking to build really a network so that we can support each other in this. I need you. You need me, right? We need each other in this. So that's what we hope to do. So, again, we're just going to have a kind of an open conversation. Mm-hmm. Shadonke, I know that a lot of these folks probably do know a bit about you, but I'd like for you to tell them kind of in a, you know, the thumbnail sketch version of, of uh, your story and how you came to be involved in movement. And I know it's, it's, a, comp- it's a long story. I will but- try to summarize it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, well, just, I, I come, my father was a Creole by tribe. <laughs> and Creole by tribe simply means he comes from the generation of the returned slaves. So, um, so he was a Methodist and my mother my country, Sierra Leone, is very interesting. It's a Muslim-dominated nation. So when the slaves went back, they went back already knowing the Bible, and so they were Christians. Mm-hmm. But they stayed in the city called Freetown. Freetown was really discovered for the returned slaves. That's why it's called Freetown. Whoever stepped his feet there, you are free. So you had all the slaves from different parts going there to start a new life and kind of start something that was new. But they bought Freetown for them. So Freetown was really owned by them, the slaves. Um, my mother was from the protectorate. Still part of the country, mm-hmm. but it was like, you know, in the provinces. And my mother is a Shabro by tribe and from the island. My father happened to wander out of Freetown and went into the island. My father was a builder. So he went into the island and saw this beautiful young lady. And he fell in love. My mother comes from a Muslim family. So it was really a difficult thing for my dad. But he was so much in love that uh, he did not see the line. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, the parents of my mother said, well, we'll give our daughter to you to be married, but on one condition that you will never convert her to become a Christian. My father was so much in love, he accepted everything. So... um. We are products of that. We are eight in the family, four boys and four girls. I'm the fifth child in the family. 
But when I got saved, when I met the Lord, and uh, one of the things that really pushed me was that I had so much passion for the lost people. Because somebody came to the church where we were, and he was speaking about the lost people in the north of our country. The north at that time was 99.9% all Muslims. And they were tough tribes. But this guy spoke, his name is Claude Gray. He spoke so heavily about the lost people and the need to reach out to them. And that really blew my mind. Because for me, I was saying, what? Do you see how people that don't know anything about Jesus? Mm-hmm. And so he made an altar call. At times, you know, altar calls can be good, they can be bad. But that one was a good one. And I was okay. seated in front. And he said, do we have anybody here who wants to be trained to go to the mission field for sh- to become a short-term missionary? I was so touched by what the guy was saying. I was so moved that I put up my hands. And I had no clue what an altar call was. That was my first experience. I never knew he was going to say stand up and come in front. Because if I have known that, I wasn't going to put my hands up. <laughs> and then he said, stand up and come in front. Interestingly, I was the only one who put up my hands. Now, everybody he was talking to knew all the tribes in the north. And they knew they were tough tribes and they were not friendly, especially to the tribes in the south. I had no clue. So when I came in front, that's how the church prayed for me and he became my coach. Mm. And with that, I, I decided I would go to the north. So I went and told my mom, who was a Muslim, and I said, Mom, I just made a commitment to go to the north as a short-term missionary. She had no idea what a missionary is. And I said, I just want to go for a few times, at least for a few weeks and come back. I said, how are you going to convince your dad about that? I said, mom, that's your own responsibility. <laughs> that's your own job. You go and tell the dad, my dad that I've made this commitment. It took some time. My dad was a very tough man, well-disciplined. And uh, my mom was able to convince my dad. And one thing my mom said was, when my dad was putting up resistance, he said to my dad, if this is what God has called him to do, I cannot stop him. So my dad gave up. And that's how I went to the north of the country. So I referred to myself as accidental missionary. <laughs> I never planned it. I went to the north. My mom gave me three tins of sardine. She did not know anything about missionary. I had no idea what it was going to take. Very biblical. Yeah. And gave you some fish. A few loaves. A few cups of gari. Gary is the local food we eat. And so I went to the north. I did not know the language. I did not know anyone. I just went. I got to the north and I said, God, I'm here. What do you want me to do? But the summary is that I went really for a few weeks. I stayed for six years. Hmm. I fell in love with the people. I just realized that the people needed God. And there was, somebody was needed to help them. And as a young missionary at that time, at the tender age of 19, getting to 20, I just went in there. And I found a school that I started to teach economics. I did economics in school. So I became a teacher in the school. And my entire salary was, I told the principal of the school, if you can allow me every morning to speak to these kids, mm-hmm. every morning, talk to the pupils, and that would be half of my salary. And the other half you give to me. She said, no problem. So every morning, part of my salary was I would preach the gospel. And that's how a lot of young people started to get saved. And that brought me into their homes, their families. I was doing extra classes 
And so I would go to their homes and I would teach economics and commerce. And uh, the parents would now tell me, we have some challenges. And they would share their challenges with me. And the only thing I need was that knew was to tell them that I have a God. If you pray, he can answer you. And I started praying for them. And God started to do a lot of things for them. And that's how my journey started. And eventually I became a church planter. I planted the first church. Started to grow. And I said, God, I don't know what I'm doing. You just help me. I'll go back to scripture and come and practice. And eventually, that passion of planting churches just grew out of me. And today, I, the Lord has brought so many people from the north. Mm. Most of my leaders from the north came to know the Lord. My mom, my first person I started to pray for is for my mom, so that my mom would be saved. So I went, I spoke to my mom about Jesus. My mom gave her life to Christ. And uh, my mom was baptized. My mom never went to school. And she said, what can I do? I, I don't read the Bible. And I said, I will coach you. So I coached my mom. I discipled my mom. My mom started to memorize scriptures in the local language. And today my mom knows more memory verses in the Bible than anyone I know. She never went to school. My mom can quote scriptures. Turn to John chapter 10, verse 1 to verse 8. She will memorize everything by the time you are getting there. And my mom has brought more Muslim women to the faith than any other woman I know. In her whole lineage, everyone, the last sister, was baptized two years ago. She was 80 years when she got baptized. So, and my mom is one of the leading intercessors in my country. For the 365 days, my mom will fast for 200 days. Fasting and praying. She's leading this massive prayer movement in the country. She never went to school, but she can explain the Bible. So that is the kind of background. My dad passed mm-hmm. away, you know, a few years ago. But my dad, even though he was a Methodist, he saw what God was doing. And he was so moved by that. And he told his pastor that when I die, I want my son to preach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the pastor honored that. And I, was, I had the opportunity to preach in my dad's funeral. And the journey of serving the Lord and the passion of serving the Lord over the years has led me into so many very restricted countries around the world. We've gone to those countries, and by the grace of God, God has helped us to plant thousands of churches. As I speak to you, in Sierra alone, we have more than 4,000 churches planted, and more than 110 schools with more than 20,000 kids in those schools. You know, so many other things that God has done. There's hardly any sector of my country that you will go, and you'll not find a disciple at least a disciple that have discipled or somebody have discipled that have trained them. In the army, we've trained the whole of the army, the whole of the police. And today in my country, the army plants churches. They planted more than 50 churches, the military. The police are planting churches. The fire force, the correctional center, the prison officers. You know, we run discipleship in any area. In prisons, we are running discipleship. With soccer coaches, we've trained so many soccer coaches and soccer players who have become disciples. For us, whatever it takes, that's what we're going to do. Because our dream is that we should permeate this discipleship making and the gospel into every sector of the society. Mm-hmm. And today, God has raised coaches. Their job is to reach out to coaches and soccer players. God has raised policemen, whose job is to go back to the police and disciple police. God has raised military men. So if you go to my country, you know, you will see... People in the army, brigadiers, salute to me. You think I'm in the army. But they are just disciples that we have raised and are involved in the process. So that's where God is bringing me from. 
and have gone to very difficult countries. Difficult countries. You know, I go completely underground and go and make disciples and train them how to live within their context, making disciples and in a loving way. So in a summary, that is my background. It is really the story of God. It's God's story. I'm just telling his story. Yeah, so I think for many of us, when we hear what's been happening in Sierra Leone the last probably roughly a little more than 15 years yes. now, right, since, since the movement began, um, we hear about a country whose population was very largely unchristian without putting any numbers to it that is now largely becoming Christian yeah. and following Jesus as disciples who make disciples. Um, I think it's very easy. Maybe you're like me. When I first heard Shadanke uh, speak, I thought, boy, that's wonderful that that is hoping, happening over there. I'm just not sure it can happen here. Right? Anybody been at that place? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand. I mean, but, but, but you can. We have, we have some honest people in here, right? So, um, yeah, I, I mean, there's this reality where we look at the things that are happening there and we think maybe that can't happen here. We think we have barriers here that would prevent that from happening here. But the reality is there were some real barriers and continue to be to the spread of the gospel in Sierra Leone. At times, uh, people who were militant wanting to stop you from speaking. Um, at times, people who are ready to maybe take your life in another way to try to keep you from speaking. Uh, can you share just a few of the barriers that you faced over the years? And then we'll talk about North American barriers as well. Yeah, you know, one of the things when we, when we do a work like this, every culture has its own challenges. Mm -hmm. And some of them can be serious. Some of them can be death threatening. Mm -hmm. I have been arrested five times. You know, came close to death. Each of those arrests. I have been poisoned once. You know, literally, you know, I, I was poisoned. They had to kind of grind bottles. The, the, the bottle, they grind it like a powder and put it in the food for me to eat. Miraculously, the Lord saved me. So the challenges have been there because um, I remember one of the time I was arrested. I was arrested by this notorious commander who was killing people during the war. He was killing in the name of God. They would come to a place like this and they would set fire on top of the building with people inside the building and they would stand outside with their guns. If you escape the fire, you will not escape the God. And they will be shouting outside, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. That means God is great. God is great. Well, I, I, I had to confront them. I told them the God I know is a loving God. He's a kind God. He can't be killing people in the name of God. That is a different God. And that message was not a popular message. You know, as we were talking, mm -hmm. that was a hard message for them. So I became a target. They were looking for me. I kept on hiding from one hideout to another. Finally, one day, I was going out to look for food for my family. And that's how, you know, I came, came across them. One of the guys knew me. And he said, Commander, that's the man we have been looking for. And so that's how I was arrested. They arrested me. They tied my hands in such a way that my fingers could touch the back of my neck. So these hands were pushed back. As I speak to you, I carry the pain still in this hand. It was pushed back in such a way my fingers could touch the back of my neck. My chest was protruded like that. And the commander... He had a pistol, and his boys had AK-47. And he was so furious with me. He was saying to me, you have been talking against the, the, the work we have been doing. He said, the God that you know is, is the loving God. Let that God come now and save you. I'm going to kill you. And when I kill you, go and tell your God that I command to kill you. And he was so furious. I'm in, I'm in the pain. And then all of a sudden, I said, God, you brought me to this world for the lost people. And I bowed on my head and I said, God, please, do me a favor. Give me boldness so that I can talk to this commander. 
And then I lifted my head and I said, Commander, I know you are ready to, you want to shoot me. I said, but please, give me five minutes to talk to you. Just five minutes. I said, Commander, please, I want to beg you. Before you shoot me, I want you to accept Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior. There was no need for introductory sermon. This was straight, just one point sermon. Accept Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior. I said, because right now, Commander, if you shoot me, there are angels waiting to take me to heaven. But if you die, Commander, you will not make it to heaven because you don't have Jesus. But if you do this one favor today, you accept Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior, and then you turn around and shoot me. I said, Jesus will forgive you. Both of us when we die, will make it to heaven. I said, Commander, Jesus loves you. His hands are widely open waiting to receive you. When I was talking, the pistol was like this. I saw the pistol drop like this. He was looking at me. He did not believe that. I mean, he thought he was watching a movie. He looked at me. And he said to his boys, untie this man. Let him go. Something is wrong with his head. He's not a normal man. <laughs> and so that's how they untied me. You know, and they let me go. I thought they were going to shoot me from the back. And I went. After two weeks, this commander came looking for me. He found me out in one of my hideouts. My wife was outside cooking. And he came with his boys. He surrounded the house with their gun. My wife was scared. And he said, I'm looking for your husband. I was inside. My wife said, he's not around. <laughs> I know she was trying to protect me, but I was also afraid that if I don't come out, Commander may harm my family. So I came out. I said, Commander, what's the problem? He said, I want to talk to you. So we went and we stood under a mango tree. And he said, do you know the way you spoke to me that day? Nobody has ever spoken to me like that. He said, I go to bed. I don't sleep. I keep on hearing your voice. That's why mm. I've been looking for you. Can we be friends? <laughs> I said, of course, Commander. That's how we became friends. And in that friendship, I led Commander to the Lord. Commander was baptized in a river called River Sewa. Some of his boys were baptized. Mm -hmm. And some of them are missionaries serving with us right now. And in the process, you know, we had this, the, the rebels who were fighting. We had also the civil militias. They were also a very strong, challenging force against the gospel. You had uh, radical Muslims who never wanted to hear anything about Jesus. One of them, they hated me so much because I said, Jesus is the only way. That word offended them. Why should you say Jesus is the only way? You should not be speaking that. I said, but that's what I know. And so they started to write me letters. They promised that they are going to burn my, me and my family alive. I have those letters up to now. But all type of threats. Anyone I get, I will take it to my prayer room. I will kneel mm -hmm. down before God. I said, God, I bring this to you. You know everything. You take care of it. And one of the guys who was, he was so, he hated me. He was the leader of the Muslim Youth League. And the Muslim Youth League, they were the most dangerous young people. One day he, he met me face to face and he said, I really hate you. He said, the only thing that will make me happy is to see you dead. Face to face. That's what he told me. And I smiled. And I said, I don't hate you. I love you. And he left. The other day, they sent me the picture of Ben Laden before his death with a picture of Ben Laden and they wrote under, you are next. That means I'm next in line to die. I took the picture of Ben Laden and I put the picture of Jesus. With the same word, I said it to the same, you are next. <laughs> you are next for salvation. <laughs> well, this young man that hated me so much, he started to have some dreams, a dream of Jesus. 
And after having the dream three times of Jesus appearing to him, he had nobody to ask. He came to me. He said, I've been having this dream about this Jesus. And he explained the dream. What does this dream mean? So I don't know. But maybe Jesus, you have been persecuting him. Maybe he wants to get your attention. The summary is that he also became a friend and a disciple him. He got saved. He was baptized. And then he became a follower of Jesus. He became a personal assistant. And then my program officer. Later, he became a member of parliament. As I speak to you today, he's one of the members of parliament. He's doing discipleship in parliament. Mm. You know, when he got saved, his wife and his children were taken away from him by his father-in-law. Because they said, we did not give our daughter to an infidel, someone that's not saved. And then I asked him, what are you going to do? Mm. He said, I'm going to believe the same God that you have believed all these years. My father-in-law will bring my family someday. And after years, they brought back the family. The whole of the family is saved. So the challenges were there of the Muslims, the radicals. I will tell you of the people that hated the church, hated me, hated my family. Today, they are followers of Jesus. Village after village. We had that. We have government officials also that did not like the message. As you are talking about the message. Some messages were too hot for them. And they become, became a problem. But through all of that, one of the things we did was that we realized that Jesus did not start his ministry. And he had gone out to pray for 40 days and 40 nights. So prayer became one mm-hmm. of the most powerful tools that we use. So created prayer hubs all over the place. In villages, in towns. People prayed. People fasted. There are times we fast. Days unending. We have whole night prayers. Half night prayers. Midday prayers. I mean, everything. We just mm-hmm. prayed so much. But there were all those challenges that were all over the place. But God saw us through mm-hmm. all of those challenges. And some people that were our enemies, who considered us as enemies, today they are my disciples, true followers of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So in every culture, every place you go, if there's no challenge to the gospel, then you are not supposed to be there. If there's no challenge to the gospel, you're not supposed to be there. Even if you're in a church setting and there's no challenge, then find another place to be. Because I have found out over the years that it is through these challenges that our faith will increase. That our intimacy with God will increase. Through these challenges, we have the secret place with God where we meet every day. We cry out to him. And he answers all, and miracles begin to work. Yeah, so I want to ask you guys just real quick to think through this question. Just be honest with yourself. If Shadanke had had a similar attitude to what many of us had, to, to look around and say, that won't happen here, what do you think would have happened in Sierra Leone? And maybe God would have found somebody else to do it. He would have said, okay, it's not, I mean, Shadanke is not going to be faithful. But I think that the truth is, God is looking for a few people who may volunteer and become accidental missionaries to go do what Shadanke has done in Sierra Leone, to actually go do it here in the United States. And in fact, there are many, many who have been praying for that in Sierra Leone that are part of your prayer ministry, uh, have been praying that, there, that God would raise up here in the United States those who would faithfully follow Jesus, who would be obedient to Jesus, who would make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, so that we could fill stages with generations of disciples who made disciples um, down, down the road. And that that is what could happen here. Now, what, what I want you to to see is, uh, first, 
it's not as if there weren't barriers in Sierra Leone. We all see that, right? Mm-hmm. There were some incredible barriers in Sierra Leone. There are some barriers here too, but maybe our, our barriers that we actually think are too big, sometimes actually maybe they pale in comparison to the barriers that exist in other places. Let's just, let's name a few barriers real quick. Go ahead, if you can, just, just shout it out. What do you think are some barriers here in North America that stand in the way of us seeing movement? Can we, can we be honest about just maybe a few of those barriers? Busyness. Busyness is a big one here. Man, we are so busy. Our time is so consumed. Indifference. Okay, so maybe everybody, uh, maybe people outside of the church, what, what I see as a big problem of indifference is also indifference inside of the church, right? We don't care. Um, I, I said this last night, quoting a, a preacher friend of mine, and again, I, I would not say this myself, but I will quote my preacher friend. So if, if you don't like um, a little saucy language, I apologize. But, uh, you know, my, my preacher friend said this. He said, looking out at his church one day, he said, I, I feel like I need to say this. I feel like I'm, I'm talking to a whole bunch of people who I'm afraid don't give a damn about the lost. And he said, what bothers me is that I think there are a whole lot of people that are more upset by the fact that I just said the word, word damn in the pulpit than there are about the fact that there are people who will never, ever, ever spend eternity with God if we don't get up and do something about it. Right? And so, I mean, that is a reality sometimes of the church. So that's another barrier. Okay, our, our level of comfort. So we like our level of comfort. So it's not that hard to get up on Sunday morning. I know that some people think it is, right? But we know it's really not that hard, even when you got to drag your kids to church. It's not that hard to show up on a Sunday morning, clock in, clock out, go back, and go right back to what you were doing, right? And the rest of the, the, rest of the week is yours, when really all of it belongs to God. Relational, relational isolation. Yeah, I told the story of my grandfather uh, last night. I can remember my grandfather, he had Alzheimer's um, in his last several years. And he would say over and over again to the point that I started wondering, is this a message from God? But he would lament that the front porch culture in America, where we used to be on each other's front porches, it's just gone. It's gone. So he would talk about that. He would say, nobody, nobody comes and sits on the front porch. Nobody does that. So, I mean, that's, that's a reality of, of the culture that we live in. So there are some real barriers. I mean, we have to work to build relationships. We have to rid ourselves of our own indifference, right? I mean, we have to step out on faith. All of that is true. So we could look at those barriers and we could decide we just can't do it. Or we could say, you know what I think? If God is calling us to do, a, do this, maybe we can through his power at work in us. Sophistication, yes. So um, any of you that will be here for discipleship.org as well, Shadanke and I think I think it's deceiving. We will be talking a little bit about um, our self-reliance, our, our addiction to self-reliance in the North American church, our addiction to clever strategy, reading the next book, um, as opposed to getting on our knees before God, praying, fasting, begging that God will do a work. I hear over and over again from Shadanke, from other guys like Josh Howard, others as well, saying, Listen, if we're not on our knees begging God to do this, it's probably not going to happen. Right? So if we're not on our knees begging God to do this, it's probably not going to happen. So one of the biggest struggles that we have in the North American church is we are not on our knees begging God for this to happen. Right? So we're not spending time prayer and fasting. We can't talk about thousands of prayer warriors. We can't talk about anybody that's spending 200 days praying and fasting because we don't see it yet. But man, we could. Yeah, can I tell you one encouraging thing, actually, in that vein, is that even some secular psychologists are starting to say that there is a crisis of meaninglessness 
in North America. There's a guy at the University of Toronto that's been saying that recently. There's a crisis of meaninglessness. People looking around saying, nothing means anything. This doesn't mean anything. That achievement that I went after doesn't mean anything. I've tried. I mean, it is it is the moment where we're having the, the Ecclesiastes moment. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And in that moment, we can help people discover God. So, Shadanke, if I can ask you a question real quick. Let's turn to in the next 15 minutes, while we've still got you here for 15 minutes, um, maybe thinking through some things that you see we in the North American church must do if we're going to see, if we have, have hope of seeing movement. So we named some of the barriers. We've got those identified. Yeah. Let's I think one of, the hope I, one of the hope I have is that there's a holy discontentment that I have seen mm-hmm. in the lives of so many other people. I remember when, um, more than 10 years ago, when I started coming to America and we started praying for even disciple-making movement to happen. Mm-hmm. I know how many senior American pastors, um, professors in university that I met, who told me, Shudanke, it will never happen. Mm. Don't even waste your time. You are wasting energy. Stop this fasting and this prayer. It's not going to work. Don't waste your time on us. Yes. <laughs> but I told them, I said, I know the God that I serve. And I know that someday this will become a movement. It will start small, but it will become a movement. And we kept on praying and fasting. We had times we bring the American flag down and people would just pray, days to come in to pray. And so when I started even hearing about the discipleship conferences mm-hmm. and all of that, it brought joy. So I want to say, I know when I speak to people, a lot of people are at a place where they're discontent with what is happening. Mm-hmm. And that's a good place. Yes. That's a good place to start. And um, I want to say this, that some of the things that the church needs to do, the church needs to accept that there's a lot to be done. We need to come to the place of accepting as a church that the church, I mean, we can grow in size, we can grow, but the church needs to come to the place that they desire more Mm. from God. And the second thing is that the church needs to mobilize people to pray. Not only the, the leaders pray, but coach the disciples, the members to begin to pray. And pray and fast. Even if it's going to be baby steps, the baby step can go somewhere. It's a starting point. You can start by encouraging people to just pray 10 minutes for the nation and for movement to happen. 10 minutes a day. People will say, that's, that's okay, I can do that. From 10 minutes, they can move to 20 minutes, to 30 minutes. But those baby steps are important. People can begin to fast, maybe from midnight to 12 midday. For some people, they can do that. Oh, I can do that. That's easy. I can do that. But gradually, that's how you begin to coach them, how to pray and fast for a whole of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, but you start with those baby steps. Because if we don't start, nothing is going to happen. We start somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, if... People can decide, you know, I'm going to fast. I will miss my coffee. You know, I know coffee is a huge thing here. You know, I'm going to miss my coffee at least in between. That is great. Encourage them. You are doing well. And pray. I have coached people. When you sit around the table, one thing about the culture is that the culture is so good. You know, Africans eat, but Americans eat more than Africans. You're always eating. There's always food somewhere. It's 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 an eating culture. And you sit down to eat. That's a great time. People can spend two minutes. Just, Father, 
we, we thank you for this nation. We thank you, God. We pray that discipleship, disciple making movement will happen around this nation. We pray for prayer movement, mm-hmm. God. Now bless this food in Jesus' name. Amen. That is when so many people begin to pray those prayers, God is paying attention. Mm-hmm. Prayer and fasting. But the third thing is intentional discipleship making. Mm-hmm. We, it has to be intentional. Mm-hmm. No apologies for that. Even if you're going to start small, the philosophy is that you start small to end big. Don't start big to end small. Start small. Jesus himself started small. So it can be five people who are willing to be disciples. That's fine. Have those five people. Spend time with them. Pour your life in them. Coach them how to do it. And then encourage them to turn around, each one of them, and look for other people that they gradually, mm-hmm. gradually. So it has to be intentional. Mm-hmm. Intentional discipleship is a must. And, and the other thing that is very important is really getting people back into the Word of God. The Word is very powerful. Get the people into the Word in an easy way, in a simple way. Let them understand the Word. Let them discuss the Word. It is very important. They're relying on the Holy Spirit. Whatever theology we had in the past about the Holy Spirit, I want you to know we can't get this thing moving without the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the move of the Holy Spirit. Because I have seen areas, communities, where they have vowed that there will be no Christian witness. There are towns that we have gone to to plant churches for 50 years. No Jesus option. Nothing. They have resisted it. All we did was we got the name of the town and all the leaders. And we prayed and fasted. We prayed and fasted. We prayed and fasted. <laughs> and then finally we went to visit. It was surprising. The very guys who were resisting opened the door. How did that happen? We have no idea. But we know that God went ahead of us. You know, so the, the, the thing here is that it is important. We rely on the Holy Spirit. And we have seen how the Holy Spirit has moved heavily. And the, also the concept of intentional multiplication. We have to multiply. Mm-hmm. We have yeah. to multiply. We can start with one and then make it two or make it three. For me, you know, multiplication is a love language of discipleship. It's a love language. If you are not multiplying, you are, make, you are not multiplying disciples, then you are really not in the business of discipleship. Yeah, can I, can I touch on that real quick? You know, in the American church, we have an issue, uh, especially those of us who stand on stage often. We, we like to be kind of the center of attention. And so what we will do is we'll start to make disciples, but we won't make disciple makers because we still want to get the most recognition for being the one who's making disciples, right? So even there, we have an issue. Or what Shadanke is saying is, look, leaders... Church leaders, we need to coach disciple makers. And I know that that can get scary. We've even had conversations with our staff before where the question comes up, well, if everybody starts doing this, then at some point in time, is there going to be a time where they look around and say, well, what do we need you for? And you know what? Maybe that time will come. And if that time comes, praise God, because that will be the day we see movement. And so we as leaders have to be willing to say, God, I would even lay my job down if we could say movement, if we could see movement. Right? We have to be willing to bring everything to God, lay everything on the altar before Him and say, this is all yours, God, so you'll take care of me if we get to that place where I'm not needed anymore, then, then fine, then wonderful, then great. And so we have to be willing to make disciple makers. And so from square one, so that's part of the intentionality too, is we're not just looking to make disciples, we're looking to make disciple makers. And if we don't do that, disciple making will never be generational. Maybe there will be one person out there who gets it. But I'll tell you what, I've made, I've made quite a few disciples 
And I was not intentional to make them disciple makers. And I don't know that any of those guys that I have discipled without discipling them toward disciple making, I don't know that any of those guys are making disciples. I think they became, they became better disciples themselves in a sense that they, their lives are more focused on following Jesus, but they're not focused on making disciples, disciples like Jesus would make disciples. And so we have to intentionally take that next step to make disciples who make disciples. So we're focused on not just making disciples, but on making disciple makers. And if that's not part of the discipleship process, then there's something really missing in our discipleship process. And, and that's, that's, that's the secret of the whole disciple making process is that you make disciples who make disciples and down the road, people really don't care about you. They really don't know about you. That's yes. great. You've done a great job. That's right. You know, but you make disciples. For example, I, I meet with the president of my country almost every Monday. We meet and we, you know, we started, he will bring all the, the, the staff in the state house. We call it state house, what you call white house. And then we started the discipleship process with them. I just coached them, the president included. And I coach them and they do the discipleship. Today, they do that without me. I will come and coach the, the president how to do it. He will go to his family. And when we meet, I ask him, you promised that you would do this. Did you do it? I'm, I'm talking mm-hmm. to the president. He said, yes, I did it. I said, well, tell me what you did. <laughs> now, I even forget I'm talking to the president. Now, but the issue here is that he has used that tool to reach out to other leaders that he has relationship mm-hmm. with. He has introduced me to other presidents in the region. Because now he's also coaching others. And that is the challenge we give to people. And for me, it is high impact, low visibility. High impact, low visibility. It is God that has to be seen. So normally I tell people, we don't touch his glory. Don't touch the glory of God. All glory belongs to him. All honor belongs to him. Let God be seen. And you be invisible. It is very important, and that is a, it is counterintuitive mm-hmm. to the modern day thing. Mm-hmm. We want to be seen everywhere, but let God be seen. It is important because the glory goes to Him, and I'm telling you, He will bless that thing. He will. I mean, there, there are areas, there are countries and tribes where we have gone. I, when we have our gathering, after every two years, we have this big gathering. Some people only come to the gathering because they want to know me because. They hear that, oh, I was trained by this guy. Who trained this other guy? I have seen people who come and they sh- just shaking my hands and said, well, if I go back home, I'm ready to die now because I just wanted to see you. That's all. Mm-hmm. I go to some of the church plants. They don't know me. I would just go to the back and I sit down. And when then I leave the church. Nobody really knows me. Nobody, and, and I enjoy it. I love it. Because I'm not the center of attraction any longer. Mm-hmm. Disciples have been trained who are training disciples. I think that is where we are supposed to be. When we do that, I'm telling you, we'll enjoy the phone. Mm-hmm. It's a big phone. You enjoy it. And the Lord that called you, we keep on making the provision for you. Yeah, I, I think I want to take what you said real quick and flip it because I think if we're honest about ourselves, what is sometimes true about the way we've done North American church, just the very attractional model. We'll hope you come see what we do here. Instead of being high impact, low visibility has been high visibility, oftentimes low impact. And it's time to flip that on its head so that we could see high impact, even if that means low visibility. Thanks so much for joining the real life theology podcast again today. 
What a great conversation between Paul and Shadonke. We really hope that you enjoyed it. As a reminder, if you haven't grabbed your tickets for the 2024 Renew National Gathering up in Indianapolis, go ahead and go to renew.org. Grab your tickets today. Check out our content online. We have free ebooks. We have free podcasts, as you've been listening to today, that has a lot of great content from our national gathering. So we just would love to see you there and love to see you and your church team experience a renewed gathering that will hopefully help you continue to effectively make disciples of Jesus today.